Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 178. As I've been hinting at, we're getting close to the end of the Clay Shaw trial in the Garrison series. There's only a handful of episodes that I want to do to complete this series. I want to get on to more exciting things. In fact, a lot of the controversy that's come up lately, especially with the JFK Records Act, has reignited my interest in delving right in to the issues of CIA involvement in the assassination, or at least potential CIA involvement in the assassination. Oh, I know, it's really not that simple. It's not like the whole agency was involved, right? But there is ample evidence that things were covered up. And I think what we want to know is just exactly what was their involvement? Who? Was it a subset? Did it go all the way to the top? Was Richard Helms involved? There are even books today that would point the finger at Alan Dulles. Preposterous? Mm, I don't know if it's preposterous, but like everything we do on this show, we have to analyze the evidence. So that's what we're going to do when we get to that part of the podcast. And that's really only a handful of episodes away. But today... We're going to do one of those things that's still left on the list. It's a classic. The story today is that of Charles I. Spiesel, an accountant who appeared out of nowhere and testified on behalf of the Garrison prosecution team. He was a bombshell witness that, on the surface, appeared to be highly credible. And just as fast as the courtroom went silent as he told the story of a party that he attended with Clay Shaw and David Ferry, a party where it was discussed that the president should be killed, a party where Clay Shaw himself and David Ferry debated how someone might escape. Just as all of this brought silence to the courtroom, giggles would soon replace the silence as Spiesel's bizarre existence and background were exposed on cross-examination. It seemed like a nanosecond in between the moment where this witness nailed down the case for the prosecution and the next when he most certainly helped to unravel it all on behalf of the defense. This is one of the most bizarre aspects of the Garrison investigation in the Clay Shaw trial. The details contained within the theme of Spiesel's testimony are well documented in the movie JFK. And yet, This character was left out of the movie, as you might surmise. He just didn't have the right M.O. for what they were trying to do. But his testimony is real enough, and it's bizarre enough, that you're going to hear the story of it today. It turns out that the story of Charles Spiesel is a little longer than I thought. So we're going to break it up and tell it in two separate episodes. Today's episode is part one, of course, and... Episode 179 will become part two. Oh, by the way, I had a lot of fun last weekend. I was invited on Quick Hits. Yep, that's the show featuring Doug Campbell and Rob Carter. 
I've had a chance to get to know these two gentlemen, and they are excellent stand-up guys. And they are a lot of fun to do a podcast with, too. As you know, I don't do many podcasts where we do it live or we do it interactively and even then edit it down. Well, they do it live, and they don't cut anything out of it. You get the whole enchilada. It was fun to do. They really know how to do it well. And the episode is a long one, which came out late Saturday night, I believe. So if you want to hear a little bit more of me, and more importantly, get a chance to connect and listen to Doug Campbell and Rob Carter if you haven't yet done so, get on over there and listen to the latest episode of Quick Hits. These two guys know their stuff. Rob has an absolute recall of memory that makes me shudder. And I can say that one of the things that it's done for me is to rekindle my excitement about doing more episodes. Lately, it's felt like a little bit of a slog. Yes, I'm not at that point in the desert. You know, the analogy that I always use when we're talking about Forrest Gump, where you just look up after you've circled the country more than once and just decide you're not going to run anymore. No, I'm not at that point. But I will say this. I got a real shot in the arm by spending some time with those guys. They are absolutely serious about what they're doing, and they've done it for a very long time, and they have a depth of materials that they've done in all three of their podcasts. I believe there are three. That's well worth listening to if you're on the trail of the assassins, just as you are while you're listening to JFK, The Enduring Secret. I'm sure that I'll be back on that show again, and we're going to have a few episodes with Doug and Rob here on JFK, The Enduring Secret as well. You know, you can't do 175 episodes without getting a few things wrong or leaving a few things out. And I've got a small list. I hope it stays small, but there are some topics that we're going to revisit when we get closer to the end of all of this. One of them is the story of Wesley Buell Frazier. I got a little criticism from a fan on it a while back and didn't really react to it, but in talking to Rob, Rob has provided some information that I think is quite interesting, and he's covered it already, obviously, on his show. But it will be one that we circle back around and provide a little bit more to the jury before you go to deliberations. Man, we are going to have a fun time with that. But we've got a ways to go, as I said, and I think the CIA episodes, which I've now decided are going to come next, are going to be a lot of fun. Yes, there will be a little bit of learning and a rekindling of certain topics that we perhaps haven't covered yet but are very important. For instance, all of the CIA initiatives that were so critical in all of this. And we'll touch upon some of the things related to Murder, Inc. as well. For instance, Operation Mongoose, which is what emerged after the disaster at the Bay of Pigs. So that's going to be a fun one that we'll take up after we finish up here in New Orleans. I want to say again, thank you to everyone who has continued to send me wonderful and very supportive emails. I really appreciate every one of them. I've tried to be good about responding to every one of them. I think I still have a couple right now recently that I haven't followed up on yet, but I've read them. I want to be thoughtful in my responses. I can't tell you how much, how pleased I am with everyone that's listening and responding. It's really helpful, and it's really helpful for me because it helps me stay at it. 
Okay, I'm doing a little bit of rambling now, but I want to go back to Doug and to Rob. Rob has his own podcast called the Lone Gunman Podcast, and it's an excellent podcast. And Doug does his own, and it's called the Dallas Action Report. I highly recommend both of them, not only for their entertainment value and the style in which they approach each episode, but the fact that they do incredibly serious analysis of the documents. And there isn't anybody, any podcast out there that goes to such a serious depth and degree to review the tens of thousands, indeed hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence that exist around this entire assassination affair. I have decided that I'm going to the Lancer Conference this year. And Doug and Rob talked me into it. Each of them are presenting at the Lancer Conference. I think Rob is doing it via Zoom and Doug is doing it in person. It's a big year, as you all know. It's the 60th anniversary, so it's in some ways more than symbolic. There aren't many original or key witnesses still left, and there aren't many original researchers still left. In fact, there aren't many second-generation researchers still left. But to the extent that there are, many of them will be at the conference. So if you get a chance, I urge that you go. Obviously, it's around the holidays, and that makes it difficult, uh, complicated maybe for many. But And I've never gone, but uh, I think it is an experience that you might enjoy. And you get a chance to see Dealey Plaza and some of the other historic areas physically yourself. Parkland Hospital, the Texas Theater, 1026 Beckley. There are lots of places to go on the tour of Dallas that is the JFK assassination. The School Book Depository Museum itself. Plenty, plenty to do. Okay, well, that's enough of a prologue wander for everybody, I am sure. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 178 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Many of us who listen to this podcast may also have a bit of a nostalgic connection to at least one and maybe more of the classic American sitcoms produced in the 1960s, shows that many of us grew up with then, and the next generation after mine did too. Even now, they're enjoyed each day as they have become kind of iconic shows indicative of a bygone era in television programming. You can still watch them today as a rerun. They're still running strong in syndication. There were so many of them with such unforgettable characters, characters that became synonymous with a sort of slapstick comedy that is recognizable by most, even some 60 years later. Gomer Pyle from McHale's Navy, Herman Munster and the Munsters, Uncle Fester and the Adams Family, or Gilligan himself on Gilligan's Island, <laughs> Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. You get my drift. I could go on and on. There were so many screwball characters that are burned into my mind from those shows. And, of course, these were some of the most successful shows of the day. So I guess every show of that genre just had to have had one of these characters to be a success. It seems like a fitting corollary for the Clay Shaw trial. 
except that every trial that has one of these wacky, zany characters is doomed to be a failure and not a success. Of course, that's solely depending upon what side of crazy you are on, (laughs) the prosecution or the defense. Well, that was the role of Charles I. Spiesel in the Clay Shaw trial. And technically, this witness for the prosecution went from a seemingly star witness on the stand to a major disaster for the prosecution upon cross-examination. Now, there is no single thing that determined the outcome of the Clay Shaw trial, and no one thing that doomed it to failure. (laughs) Well, no one thing except possibly the curious testimony of Charles I. Spiesel. And the story of his involvement in the Clay Shaw trial, well, you just can't make this stuff up, folks. It's one of the most fascinating storytells you will hear in this series. And just one more example of where fact is more interesting than fiction in the Kennedy assassination case. Charles Spiesel was an accountant who, at the time of the trial, was living in New York City. By some accounts, he was a native of New Orleans, and for a short time in 1963, he was visiting and living back in the Crescent City of New Orleans. He was a shorter man, as far as height goes, and he was a rather impeccable dresser, and he looked the part when he showed up to testify in court at the Clay Shaw trial. Wearing a well-fitted pinstripe suit for the trial, he could also be found at times in bowler hats that coordinated with his suits. Garrison's team had determined the order of the witness lineup, and Charles Spiesel was up early once the prosecution pivoted away from the Dallas section of the trial and began to lay out their case for Clay Shaw's connection to the Dallas portion of the murder plot. Garrison's prosecution team was headed, as we know, by James Alcock, Garrison's lead assistant DA in the case. And Alcock would move quickly during this phase, first presenting the Clinton witnesses and then following that with Vernon Bundy, the drug addict who saw an exchange take place on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain between Lee Harvey Oswald and Clay Shaw. The Clinton witnesses were respectable citizens and some were public officials, but They were followed by Bundy, a less credible witness because of his drug addiction and past criminal record. Still, the sum total of the early testimony before Spiesel was to take the stand was beginning to form a believable narrative around some connection between Shaw and Oswald, with the next witness about to tie it all together. This little man from New York was about to testify that the connection was not just casual. On the contrary, the connection clearly involved the assassination. Accountants usually make good witnesses, I know. Often they are observant, attentive to detail, capable of objective recall that is without hyperbole, not to mention often hailed as trustworthy and credible. And certainly when following a heroin addict, he had the opportunity of following a low bar when it comes to the credibility of a witness on the stand. But the decision itself to even put him, this accountant, on the stand was controversial among Garrison's team. And in those days, the prosecutor's witness list was not required to be provided in advance to the defense team. So, 
when Spiesel walked through the courtroom doors and was called to the stand by James Alcock, there were more than a few raised eyebrows in that courtroom. Who was this man who just took the stand and identified himself as a man living in New York? And what exactly was this accountant going to testify to? James Kirkwood's rendition contained in his book, American Grotesque, is probably the best rendition of this next sequence of events regarding Spiesel's questioning and testimony in the courtroom of the Clay Shaw trial. For some unknown reason, Spiesel's actual testimony was not transcribed that day under the ordinary court transcription procedure that would have taken place by the private firm of Dietrich and Pickett. But accounts of it are largely the same in both the Garrison supporter and Garrison detractor versions of all the books I have previously referenced on the podcast. Kirkwood's is by far the most detailed, along with Garrison's own telling of the story. Like I said, you can't make this stuff up. So let's start with what Kirkwood said in his book. Charles I. Spiesel, a clerk called out. Nobody had his name in his Shaw trial playbill. And all heads craned around to those large wooden doors underneath the clock as a dapper, balding little man marched down the aisle of the packed courtroom. Wearing a well-tailored pinstripe suit and the assured, almost ridiculous air of one about to perform his citizen's duty, he was sworn in. When he'd repeated his name and had given his address in New York City, a breeze of hungry whispers spread throughout the court. Yes, here was a New Yorker on the stand, and somehow this lent a certain nonpartisanship, which, in turn, would add a goodly amount of heft to his appearance and testimony. Charles Spiesel spoke out in a loud, clear voice in answer to preliminary questions regarding his occupation, accounting and tax work for a New York firm, a profession he'd been in for some 20 years. There was a definite no-nonsense tone to his voice that was impressive. This was no dope addict, thief, pimp, or pusher of pornographic films. Here was a professional man. Under direct questioning by James Alcock, Spiesel told of coming to New Orleans in May of 1963 to visit his daughter, who was attending Louisiana State University, and also possibly to relocate himself in business to New Orleans, a city he had visited often. He went on to say he frequented a bar in the French Quarter, Lafitte's blacksmith shop, and that one night in June, he spotted a man he thought he'd flown with in the Air Force during World War II. This turned out to be David W. Ferry. Now, we should note here that David Ferry never served in the Air Force, nor did he serve in any branch of the military during World War II. But nevertheless, according to Spiesel, Ferry, another man, and two women invited Spiesel to accompany them to a party at an apartment in the vicinity of Dauphine and Esplanade Streets. Spiesel said they climbed two flights of stairs and, after being let in by the host, he was introduced to all of the people present, 10 or 11 men, including Clay Shaw. After a while, Spiesel said the two women and the other man he'd arrived with left, and the remaining group, all men now, moved into the kitchen dining area 
and sat around a large oval table where everyone soon started knocking President Kennedy. Then someone said that somebody ought to kill that son of a bee. Spiesel said he did not know who said those words, but he claimed that at first Clay Shaw seemed, and I quote, amused at the conversation. Soon another man voiced a desire to kill the president, but wondered how it could be done. According to Spiesel, the talk continued for five or six minutes, and finally it was agreed that, and I quote, it would have to be done with a high-powered rifle with a telescopic sight and about a mile away. Spiesel claimed Clay Shaw entered into the conversation when the talk got around to the difficulty of the killer's getaway, at which time he discussed the possibility of flying the assassin to safety with David Ferry. Spiesel maintained he'd been quite alarmed at the tone of the conversation, going on to add he had never seen Clay Shaw after this party, but had bumped into David Ferry two or three times. Ferry, the witness claimed, had suggested that perhaps Clay Shaw could help him set up in business in New Orleans. Spiesel testified that he'd phoned Shaw's office several times after the party, but his calls had never been returned. Spiesel had completely silenced the crowd by the time Alcock had finished his questioning of the witness. There is no doubt that an air of credibility had entered the room, and what he said was incredibly favorable to the prosecution at that moment. And it seemed to everyone listening in the courtroom gallery that the Clay Shaw defense team just had to be worried. Spiesel, it should be noted, did not volunteer endless reams of information in response to a question. He would usually answer without undue loquaciousness and then sit there patiently awaiting the next question. The courtroom had been completely quiet and serious attention had been paid to his story. Up to this very moment, he seemed to be a highly credible witness that was highly damaging to the defense. But here is where the craziness and zaniness of this story begins, or perhaps I should say is initially revealed within the courtroom itself. According to Patricia Lambert's account of this story in her book, False Witness, we have to turn the camera now on Sal Panzeca. As you recall, he was the junior attorney who came to Clay Shaw's rescue at the moment that he was booked on conspiracy charges by the Garrison team back on March 1, 1963. At that time, Sal Panzeca was a junior attorney in the office working for the Wegman brothers. As you might recall from previous episodes, the Wegman brothers were Shaw's personal attorneys before the conspiracy indictment and who teamed up with Irvin Diamond to defend Shaw in the conspiracy case. Just about the time that Spiesel began his testimony, Salvatore Panzeca was being pestered by one of the court's deputies. The deputy was getting messages for Panzeca from Panzeca's next-door neighbor, a man named Bill Storm. Panzeca was annoyed. He thought to himself, didn't Storm know this trial was important? Finally, he gave in, and Panzeca left the courtroom and called Storm back. It was a good thing for the defense that he did. Storm would say hello, and then drop a bombshell. He would tell Panzeca that he had heard on the radio that Mr. Spiesel was going to testify against Panzeca's client. Storm would launch into his story. He would say, let me tell you a little bit 
about this man, Spiesel. I worked with him for many months in a CPA firm, Storm would say. I'm telling you, the guy is a nut. He hears voices. He thinks the world is tape recording his life. He had his daughter fingerprinted before she went away to college. As Lambert describes it, the information was hurriedly told to Panzeca as he busily took notes. Panzeca said, Bill, are you sure? Oh yes, Sal, I know the guy is kooky. He sued the city of New York. Panzeca hung up the phone and headed straight in to tell the story to fellow attorney Bill Wegman. Wegman thought it was a crazy story too, but he nevertheless related to Irv Diamond, who was getting set to cross-examine this new and explosive witness. And James Kirkwood sums it up by saying that as James Alcock finished his questioning of the witness, if Alcock could have then pressed a button and sent Spiesel careening out of the witness chair and back to New York at that very moment, no further questions asked, he would have been a most damaging witness to the defense of Clay Shaw. But we all know that was not the case. No careening off the walls and no early departure back to New York. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Irvin Diamond began cross-examining Spiesel with a subtle undercoating of relish in his low, easy voice. Diamond's first question was, Are you a certified public accountant? No, Spiesel replied. The defense lawyer soon got into his trip to New Orleans in the spring of 1963, asking Spiesel where he'd stayed upon arrival in New Orleans. One of the hotels, Spiesel replied. I don't recall. In what section of the city, Diamond wanted to know. Spiesel said it was probably in the French Quarter, but he wouldn't be pinned down, adding he'd only stayed in the hotel two or three days or a week. Diamond kept at him on this point until Spiesel, with a small patronizing smile, said, if you give me a directory, I'll thumb through it. Diamond then asked, You mean you stayed in a hotel for three or four days or a week and you don't remember which hotel? No, Spiesel replied, not at all rattled. Spiesel said he'd then moved to an apartment for a month on Royal Street. Diamond wanted to know where on Royal Street. The witness said he thought it was probably in the 900 or 1,000 block, but he wasn't sure. From there, Spiesel testified he'd moved to an apartment on Esplanade. Diamond inquired if he'd had a lease. Spiesel said no. It was on a month-to-month -month basis. Did he remember the landlady? The witness said he thought the owner was a doctor. How had he paid his rent? The lawyer asked. Probably by cash, Spiesel said, adding, if you want to check with a landlord, it's okay but since Spiesel had not been too specific about who or where the landlord was, this might prove to be a formidable task. Finally, Diamond got to the meeting at Lafitte's with Ferry and friends. Spiesel could not recall the first or last names of either the other men or their two women companions. At this point, Diamond asked Spiesel if he'd ever tried to sell his story of the French Quarter Party to any of the news media. No, was the forthright reply. When Diamond pressed him, mentioning the name of a man from CBS TV and asking Spiesel if he hadn't discussed appearing on a documentary program that the network was planning, 
Spiesel admitted he'd been approached, but firmly added he had not taken part in the program. Diamond then took a short pause and then asked, How much did you want? There was another brief pause before the question was answered. I told him a couple of thousand, Spiesel said, not at all flustered at having been caught up in the fine points of cross-examination, merely indicating by tone that his time was not without worth. Diamond, warming to his task and adding a slight dollop of indulgence to his growl, went on to the party itself. Although Spiesel could remember much of the conversation, he could not recall the names of any of the other 10 or 11 men present, with the exception of the defendant, Clay Shaw, and David Ferry, of course, now deceased. Spiesel was clear that Clay Shaw had not been the party's host, but he did not know who the host was, mentioning at one time he thought he might have been a schoolteacher. Diamond asked him to describe the architecture of the building. Spiesel said the building had a general look about it. Well, then give me a general description of it, the lawyer urged. Spiesel indicated it was not a really outstanding architectural job, but Diamond was interested even if it was not noteworthy. He finally elicited from Spiesel that the outside of the building was a light brownish color, either brick or some sort of stone. Question about the inside of the apartment, Spiesel indicated he could give a description of the kitchen dining area, but not the large living room. How large was the living room? Diamond wanted to know. About 8 by 12 feet was the reply. You call that large? Diamond asked in a flat voice. Spiesel thought about this and then said perhaps it was larger. Diamond asked him to point out an area in the courtroom that would approximate the size of the living room. Spiesel did, and when he finished, Diamond measured this off, saying, let the record show the witness indicated an area approximately 23 feet long and 12 feet wide. Spiesel never appeared miffed when Diamond picked out contradictions in his testimony. On the contrary, he seemed to be entirely pleased to be sitting up there in the witness chair, and if finally Diamond's tone was one of pure patronization, Spiesel patronized his questioner right back. Out front in the audience, everybody was beginning to feel extremely happy that Spiesel had shown up. Boring, he was not. Finally, Diamond had Spiesel give a vague description of the kitchen dining area and then pressed Spiesel to make a rough sketch of as much of the apartment as he could recall. When he finished the drawing, Spiesel mentioned it wasn't all that complete because he had not had occasion to go to the bathroom. Diamond showed the sketch to Clay Shaw and the rest of the defense team and had it passed around the jury. He then took the witness through the party and the entire conversation concerned with killing the president. After this, the lawyer asked if the witness had noticed anything unusual about Ferry. No, Spiesel replied. This was remarkable because anyone who had ever met Ferry spoke first of his bizarre appearance. Diamond continued to, along this line, ask Spiesel to describe Ferry's hair. Reddish-brown. Was it well-groomed? Diamond asked. Fairly well-groomed. The witness agreed. Did he have unusual eyebrows? The lawyer asked. Eh, a little thinner than most men's. Not unusual outside of that, Spiesel would say of David Ferry, who, by wide acknowledgement, had messy clumps of glued-on hair 
and thick-pasted-on eyebrows that rivaled those of the late John L. Lewis. Now the defense lawyer went back over the testimony, returning to Lafitte's and the witness's subsequent meetings with Ferry. Diamond appeared to be stalling. The defense lawyer next asked Spiesel what had been the reason for selling his former income tax return business. James Alcock objected, but Judge Haggerty permitted the question. I had a pretty good tax business, but it wasn't going too well, Spiesel replied. Finally, Diamond looked down at the defense table, paused briefly, and then glanced back up at Spiesel. Isn't it true, the lawyer asked, you filed a suit in New York in 1964 against a psychiatrist and the city of New York, claiming that over a period of several years, the police and others have constantly hypnotized you and finally harassed you out of business. Why, yes, Spiesel admitted without batting an eye. He had filed a lawsuit, and not only that, the suit was for $16 million. The courtroom perked up at that moment, and the press warmed up to their writing pads with a slight time off for quick glances and raised eyebrows that said, Oh, what have we here? A number of the reporters' faces were reddening in anticipation of goodies to come. Diamond's voice was now honey-coated in condolence with Spiesel's problems as he asked why a psychiatrist and the police would want to hypnotize and harass him. Spiesel really could not say, but he casually pointed out that his father had done undercover work for the FBI, and it might just be a communist conspiracy. After he had asked if it were true that Spiesel had filed his own $16 million lawsuit without the aid of counsel and had furthermore acted as his own lawyer, to which he received a proudly affirmative answer, Diamond requested adjournment for the day, indicating he had some new material regarding the witness and needed time to study it. The new material was a copy of Charles Spiesel's lawsuit which was arriving at that moment by air freight from New York City, a testament to quick and expensive investigative work. It was later reported that the defense team spent $4,000 to have a hurried but nevertheless exhaustive investigation of Spiesel's life and times. Although Clay Shaw had already been bled dry by the cost of the trial, the expense of this specific endeavor seemed to be well worthwhile. It was a Friday night, and everybody went home and went to bed, and they came back on Saturday morning. Diamond began his cross-examination easily that morning, asking the witness if he discussed his testimony with anyone since leaving the stand the day before. Spiesel would answer back only to say that I testified yesterday in court. With whom did you talk, Diamond asked. Spiesel would respond, saying casual acquaintances. I don't know their names. Spiesel then shrugged and added that he'd spoken to a few people at a bar in the quarter. Lucky Pierre's, where he'd relaxed and played pool and also had called a friend from the Fountain Blue Motor Inn to say he was in town to testify. Diamond introduced into evidence a copy of Spiesel's complaint, number 32001, marked U.S. Court of Appeals against the Pinkerton Detective Agency and numerous other defendants. The lawyer then took his place 
in front of the jury and, speaking into a microphone, read portions of the suit, which claimed the defendants during a period from January 1, 1948 to July 5, 1964, a total of 16 years, had used a new police technique to torture him, that is, to torture Spiesel, and conspired with others to torture the plaintiff in New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, and various other places. Spiesel claimed that these defendants also harassed him, annoyed, tailed him, tapped his phones, and prevented him from having normal sexual relations. The defendants also kept him hypnotized for periods of time, caused him to make errors in his work because of their hypnotic control, wreaked psychological terror upon him, prevented him from making business deals and from borrowing money from public agencies, surrounded him with competitors in the tax return business, and hired plants to work in his office, who then acted intoxicated and annoyed and frightened his customers. One of Spiesel's more interesting complaints accused the defendants of using disguises in their attempts to pass themselves off as his relatives for the purpose of gaining entrance to his home, and also, and I quote, to quickly pass by the plaintiff in public places. The defendants also were accused of attempting to create the impression that Spiesel and his family were communists, attempting to link the plaintiff with various crimes, interfering with sign carriers advertising the plaintiff's business, conspiring to make Spiesel break the law, depriving him of his civil rights, mentally torturing, humiliating, and financially ruining him. In a bar below Spiesel's office, near the building's main light switch, they also supposedly planted a man who enacted the equivalent of scenes out of Angel Street. Add this all up, and Spiesel claimed the results forced him out of his own income tax business in 1963. During the reading of these accusations, Spiesel sat there with the air of one who had, after all, been mightily imposed upon, but who was not going to let anyone get away with these foul deeds in the end. The judge's lamp had been bent around earlier to shine down on Spiesel so he could verify the copy of his lawsuit. During a brief lull, and with a harsh light still glowing down upon his balding head, Kirkwood would detect a slight twitch in his right eye and a tendency to press down hard upon the arm of the witness chair with the palm of his hand. Kirkwood would state that he was immensely sorry for him and was struck by a quick impulse to go up and crane the neck of the lamp, diverting the direct glow from him. <laughs> but the cretin in me, the Shakespearean groundling, drooling for more bottom, soon rose to the surface when his testimony continued. Diamond, Diamond delved into the business of hypnosis, asking about various people named in the suit who had, he claimed, hypnotized him and how he knew he was being hypnotized. To this, Spiesel replied, the best way I can explain it is to give you the general definition of hypnosis, which is to Come under the will of a person, but be aware that it is hypnosis. At one point, after Alcock had objected to this line of questioning as redundant, Judge Haggerty asked Diamond, Why are you going into this? Do you want me to tell you in front of the jury, Diamond asked? And in reply, 
to which the judge answered a brisk no. Diamond then asked Spiesel how many different people had hypnotized him. Alcock again objected, and Diamond glanced up at the judge, saying, My intent should be fairly obvious to the court. You may proceed, said the judge. Diamond asked the question again. Spiesel thought a moment and then replied, It's hard to say. Possibly 50 or 60. By this time, reporters in the courtroom were all but spraining their wrists, attempting to take down every possible syllable of this rich testimony. The following whispered aside took place between two members of the press. First reporter, did he say hypnotized 50 or 60 times? Second reporter, no, people. First reporter, hypnotized by 50 or 60 different people? Second reporter, Yes. First reporter, Jesus. Diamond then wanted to know if Spiesel had ever been hypnotized in New Orleans. To this question, Spiesel replied, I believe I've been followed down by detectives. Diamond pressed for an answer about hypnosis in New Orleans until Spiesel finally said, The point is, if I say yes, you'll want to know the name of the person, and I can't give it to you. Diamond then pulled his voice way down to a patently conspiratorial level and replied, Suppose then, I tell you I won't ask you for the person's name. Spiesel apparently thought that was fair and said, From time to time, someone has tried to hypnotize me. Again, Diamond inquired how Spiesel knew when he was being hypnotized. The witness brought forth ripples of laughter when he replied, After all this time, I'm an expert. Spiesel went on to explain, when someone tries to get your attention, catch your eye. That's a clue right off. Now, Kirkwood could see several reporters covering their mouths with their hands or biting upon pencils. On it went, and the testimony did not get less bizarre. Diamond knew he had a showstopper, and he wanted full value. This was not done as much to mock the witness, I believe, as to teach the state a lesson to give them a sound spanking for the audacity and recklessness they displayed in their choice of witnesses. As the charade continued, James Alcock sat lower in his chair, and his neck seemed to sink down between his shoulder blades. He had made as many objections as he possibly could, but now the cat was out of the bag, and there was no stuffing it back in. Diamond soon inquired if Spiesel had perhaps been hypnotized in May and June of 1963 at the time of the party he claimed he attended. I don't really know if it did happen, Spiesel said, adding a gratuitous piece of information. I've been coming down here since before that, since 1961. I'd come down twice a year. Once I came down to watch LSU play Ole Miss. Diamond then entered into the area of hypnotic illusions and the implantation of thoughts. Now, after having testified for almost an hour about his suit, his allegations, and hypnosis, Spiesel said, you must understand. This case may or may not go on trial in federal court. He said he was aware that his testimony in the Shaw case would get extensive press coverage and added, I'd hate to take a chance of having my case thrown out by having to go into the details. He looked up at Judge Haggerty and blinked, unless your honor orders me to.
Diamond then earned chuckles when he asked in deadly mock seriousness, You hate to jeopardize a $16 million lawsuit, is that right? Indeed he was right, and Spiesel went on to explain the amount of the suit. The number of years during which he had been inconvenienced by the defendants added up to 16, and he was well aware that the statute of limitations might well rule out seven or eight years. So he was, and I quote, covering myself. Do you mean the damages to you are worth a million dollars a year, Diamond asked? Spiesel replied, that's what it amounted to. Toward the end of this lengthy session, Diamond got Spiesel to admit that in 1965, when he'd made a trip to New Orleans, he thought he was being followed and had attempted to take depositions to this effect from the New Orleans Police Department. Said Spiesel, at the time I was being followed around, I was alone. I wanted to find out if the police department or the district attorney's office was involved. But it was pretty well determined it was people from New York. I was puzzled who from New Orleans would be following me since I knew no one here. Diamond also questioned him about whether he'd thought Aaron Cohn, the managing director of the Metropolitan Crime Commission, might also be involved. Spiesel said he had indeed and that Cohn asked him if he would accept a letter stating the Metropolitan Crime Commission was not tailing him. I said, okay, Spiesel said. Diamond's final question was, has anyone hypnotized you on this trip to New Orleans? Spiesel considered this for a moment, then smiled, cocked his head and said, I'm afraid I would have to say no. Damn, I heard a reporter mumble. On redirect, James Alcock tried to rehabilitate the witness by concentrating on his war record, honorable discharge, in his tax business, which Spiesel claimed to have built up over a period of six or seven years. Alcock's final question on redirect was, have you ever been convicted of anything in your life? I have not, Spiesel replied. Diamond, surprisingly enough, took him back on recross, asking, is it not a fact that 15 suits were filed against you for bad tax returns? Yes, answered Spiesel, going on calmly to explain, but they were part of the conspiracy against me. It had been whispered around that the district attorney's office must not have known about much of Spiesel's past activities, or they would have never have put him on the witness stand. Now, Diamond destroyed that theory when he asked, When you conferred with the district attorney's office about testifying in this case, did you tell them about these lawsuits and your having been under hypnosis? Yes, I mentioned it. Spiesel replied. Diamond soon declared that he was finished with Spiesel, who smiled at the judge, got down off the stand, and had just passed the cheerless prosecution table, now only steps away from the swinging gate in freedom. When Diamond suddenly faced the judge and requested permission to have the witness lead the court to the building where the alleged party and conspiracy talk had taken place. James Alcock objected strongly, saying it was improbable that the witness could possibly remember the exact place, but Diamond insisted, saying Spiesel had gone into a description of both the inside and outside of the building. Your Honor, it is vitally important to our case whether he can find this building, and if he does, whether the apartment is there. The judge soon agreed. We will have to get a New Orleans public service bus to take the jury, 
and we'll have to find out who owns the building and get the keys to go inside. Diamond smiled and crooned. Let's see if we can find it first. Thank you for listening to episode 178 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.